Amen. You may be seated. Let us bow in prayer. Guide us, O God, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, and in your truth find wisdom, and in your will discover peace. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Oh, please turn, if you would, to the book of Jonah. We're continuing to go through this marvelous, wonderful little book. I was telling Pastor Allen, you know, the minor prophet, and he goes, yeah, it's a minor prophet, but there's really nothing minor about it. But we are coming to chapter 3, but um, I wanted us to read that last verse there, uh, chapter uh, in verse 10 first, as it gives us kind of a springboard um, into chapter 3. Okay, so I will read chapter 2, verse 10, all the way through chapter 3. Here now as I read God's word. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God's Word. Well, I would like to start off this evening about talking about two great men of God, two gospel preachers that came to mind as I was reading this passage, namely Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. As they come to mind, they came to mind because these two men were used mightily by God during the Great Awakening, all the way from Britain to the United States. 
in the 18th century as the Lord anointed their words as they preached and their hearers were in large scale brought to their knees in repentance and faith. Men, women, and children sat in their pews in churches and listened to the message that the Lord had prepared for Jonathan Edwards to proclaim. And they were brought to the realization that what they needed was not formality, but an active and living relationship with Jesus. And as they repented and gained a renewed trust in Jesus Christ, they went and told others, and non-Christians also flocked in droves to hear and believe in the good news. And just as the Lord used Jonathan Edwards in such a mighty way, primarily within the walls of the church, he also used George Whitfield outside the walls of the church, even though he was of small stature. His powerful voice carried long distances in the parks and even in the public square. Again, the Lord used this man. He anointed his words to bring many people to their knees in repentance as they recognized their sinfulness and their need for a Savior. It wasn't that these men and other like them were something great, but it was because the Lord is great and that that moment in history, the Lord was up to something and they obeyed God's call to preach. Now, these were great awakenings that had very vast impacts, but you know, they probably were not as close to the intensity um, uh, as close to the intensity of 8th century B.C., Assyrian city of Nineveh. And these preachers, though similar to Jonah, each had a little different life experience than Jonah. They weren't swallowed by a fish, for example. But what they do have in common with Jonah is that there was a time in their lives where they too repented of their disobedience and heeded the call to preach the gospel. And the Lord and his sovereign grace and his providence used them mightily. You see, what we need today is an awakening. Have you ever in your prayers prayed for an awakening where men and women and children are awakened to the fact that they have sinned and fallen short of God's glory and that there is no other hope for salvation other than Jesus Christ? Yes, the Lord has called and is calling laborers into his harvest field. And yes, he is using them in mighty ways for his kingdom. Yes, and even here in California. But it has been quite some time. And in California, we probably have never experienced mass conversion on such a large scale. Well, Nineveh, experienced the saving hand of God in a mighty way. Some after, sometime after Jonah was vomited out on dry land, uh, we're not sure how long, Jonah heeded the Lord's command and called out against Nineveh the word of the Lord. 
And immediately we read in verse 5, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. You see, God and his timing and his providence chose to use Jonah to spark the fire of awakening, which spread throughout Nineveh. It was proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh, that great city. But we read in verses 1 through 3 that it began with Jonah. You see, Jonah needed heart surgery. He needed a heart change. Jonah was given a second chance, and he had repented of his running away from God and his word. Even though it was probably short-lived due to his personal attitude struggles. But he obeyed God's voice. He arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, as it is our desire to see a spiritual awakening in our land, I hope. It's our desire to see a spiritual awakening in our community, in our district, in our city, in our country. We have to realize, of course, it starts with God, but it starts with the work that is done in our hearts. Now, we are not God, and we do recognize that God works in mysterious ways, and he does whatever he chooses and he may very well choose not to bring such a wide-scale revival for his own glory. However, he still can and does choose to use us, even the smallest of us, to be witnesses to those around us. And also, all of this for his own glory and to and by his grace. But you know, you need to ask this question. In your own heart, are you repenting? Are you putting away the desires of the flesh? In your own heart, are you renewing your hope and trust? Are you renewing your faith in Jesus Christ? And then you need to ask the question, are you heeding the call? that command that Christ has issued the church, not only the institution of the church, but the individual members of the body to proclaim, to proclaim Christ, to witness to Christ. You see, that's what I think you need to get today, is that it starts in your heart, it starts with you, and it will indeed affect others. You see, as Christians, we recognize daily more and more how much we really need grace. We realize that we continually fall short. We know that the grace is always there, picking us up and carrying us along. You know, Jonah knew that he was hurled into the sea in chapter 1 as a means of God's chastisement, his discipline. And he was 
swallowed up by the fish. But while in the fish, Jonah recognized that he was wrong and that he was living in his rebellion, trying to run away from the task with which he was entrusted. And so he prayed that prayer that we considered in chapter 2. He acknowledged his sin, and he called out again to God for help. I believe Jonah was renewed then. I believe he was revitalized, though he was asleep in the boat. He was ready to die in the sea. He was awakened in the belly of the fish, and he was given a second chance as he was on dry land. You know, you and I all struggle with the temptation to go off on our own. We trick ourselves and we say, hmm, I got this. And we act like God isn't even there at times. And we see that we cannot just sit there and point the finger at Jonah because we are just like him. Well, it's time that like him, we recognize our fault and turn away from our sin and run to Christ. One major area that I struggle with in obedience, and I venture to say that many of you do too, is making the best of every gospel opportunity that the Lord gives me. It's easy to disobey here because it makes us feel uncomfortable. We might mix up our words or say something wrong or, or whatever it might be. Well, you know, the task of proclaiming Christ belongs to you too. Yeah, we're all gifted in different ways. We all have our ways to do it, but how can we see or expect an awakening ear if people don't hear the word? How will we see our church, uh, or any church grow for that matter, if we are not witnessing to Christ? Yes, God does have a will and a plan, but he often appoints means to accomplish that plan. And the Lord uses the humblest of means. He uses the simple and clear proclamation of the good news. Look at Jonah. He says five words in the Hebrew. Five. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I said it was in the Hebrew. So he gives them a clear warning. He says in 40 days. And then he gives them a clear message, doesn't he? He says Nineveh shall be overthrown. You see, it was simple. It was clear. It was precise. It was to the point. You know, it, I, I confess, it is so easy to complicate the message when we talk to others. It's so easy, especially me, pretty fresh out of seminary, only about eight or nine years or whatever it is, to be so theological with our language. So easy to get off on a tangential a hobby horse too, rather than stick to the essential message that the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the gospel. Jesus Christ died for sinners. I mean, that's the gospel. 
you know, you do need to warn them and you do need to offer them the gospel hope. And it's that simple. When Jonah walked into Nineveh that day, he didn't break into a long theological treatise explaining the ins and outs of the uh, theological encyclopedia, trying to prove that his end times view of all millennial or post-millennial or whatever it is, is right? No. And neither should we. Not only do you need to proclaim the message of God, you also need to proclaim the power of God. And yes, the message itself is power, but the words you speak in your testimony won't do much unless the Lord uses those words to touch the hearts of those to whom you speak. You need to pray that God would give you the word to speak, what is appropriate for that particular person, what is appropriate for that particular circumstance at that particular time. It involves prayer. You know, before preaching a sermon, pastors usually pray for something called unction, which is the which is the Lord to to do something to empower that word and to accomplish what it was sent out for. Well, you brothers and sisters also need to ask God for unction in your witness to Christ as you share with others. You know, God God used Jonah's simple and clear message to accomplish what God wanted. The people of Nineveh believed God and repented of their evil ways, which have, in chapter 1, risen to his nostrils. And throughout chapter 3, we see evidence of this. Yes, God can use your simple and clear message, new believer, shy person, uneducated person, high school student, businesswoman, IT guy, stay-at-home mom, yes, even you children. So the fire of revival spread throughout Nineveh, even faster than Jonah himself would travel. In verse 4, on Jonah's very first day's walk, he proclaimed with unction the word of God. But then you don't see any mention of time or number of days after his proclamation. And already the king and his nobles and the general population were struck to the heart. And they believed and repented. Now how is that even possible? Well, because God knew beforehand and ordained it before the foundation of the earth. You see, the minute the first people heard the message, they told others, and then they told others, and then they told others, and so on. The Spirit of God has empowered that word, and that word traveled unchained or unbound, and no one, no, nothing could stop it. This is a true spiritual awakening that we read of here in chapter 3. Those who heard the message could not help it, but to tell others, everyone and everywhere, what Jonah had spoken the first day. 
And if your neighbors truly receive the word, then they will truly repent and believe. You see, it's called conversion. The hearers of Edwards and Whitfield not only heard the word of God proclaimed to them and believed it, they were brought to their knees and they were asking God to forgive them. And so were the Ninevites. How do you know when true conversion occurs? What, what is true repentance? Well, for the rest of our time this evening, I think this is a worthy endeavor, even if you were in my membership class this morning and it's going to be a review. You know, it's important as we consider our own lives as Jonah considered his. It's important as we are members of this body of Christ and we are called to build one another up in the faith. And it's also important as we consider our prayer for awakening and revival in our land. But let's look a little at each element of repentance from our passage today. Well, first off, um, we speak of illumination. The people are, were awakened to the fact that something was wrong and that they had fallen short of the glory of God, that they were sinners. I believe Jonah himself knew he was sinning from chapter 1, and he knew that he was being chastised or disciplined for his sin when God sends the storm. Also, when he was hurled into the sea by the sailors and that whole series of events that occurs, he knew that he was in the wrong because God revealed that to him. Plus, remember, Jonah was a prophet of God who was ordained by God to go and warn the Gentiles of their impending doom. But for the Ninevites, we see it especially here in chapter 3. In verse 3, Jonah actually takes the long, arduous journey. We don't know if he was happy about going, but he did willingly obey God. And he proclaims the message, short and to the point, warning them that their city will be overthrown in, uh, overthrown in 40 days. And it's possible that it's a literal 40 days, though in other places in the Old Testament, whether it was a, a literal 40 days or just language of impending doom. But it's worthwhile to remind you that when the preacher preaches from the pulpit or the member witnesses to Jesus, uh, to his neighbor, or in the park, it is a loving and caring thing to warn the congregation and the non-believer of impending doom for denying the Savior. Plus, how can you really grasp and appreciate the good news if you're really not warned of the bad news? To prove the case in point, think of Jonathan Edwards, his most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That's a pretty good example. Now, I don't wish to go into the content of his, that's his sermon here, but, but take a moment to think about this title. As Jonah went into the city, the city whose aroma of sin rose to God's nostrils in chapter 1, 
and he warned them. Jonah was a mouthpiece for God. He was speaking on behalf of the Almighty, and God gave him unction. And he took those five words, and it pierced their hearts like a two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow. The word of God illumined their minds, and they knew that this word was indeed from the Lord. When we talk about faith, which is closely connected to repentance, as they come in a package, we say that we first need to have the knowledge of the gospel and ascend to it. Here in repentance, God by his spirit lets you know that you're wrong. So that's first. Second is conviction. As the Lord illumines the mind and the heart, the only result can be conviction. Now at this point, one who is not called by God would only experience condemnation. But those whom God wants to hear and receive the message are convicted of their sin. Uh, They are found out to be in the wrong. See, Jonah had a sense of conviction, and he includes that in his experience in chapter 1. And in verse 12, he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. He was caught, and he knew it in his spirit. Now, now what about Nineveh? Well, the word of God pierced them. In 3.9, they felt it so strong that they could do nothing but ask the important life and death question. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The Ninevites felt the weight of their horrid sin on their shoulders. And they knew that there would be no way out except to appeal to God for him have mercy on them. You know it when you're convicted. You're lying in bed. We can't sleep. You keep thinking about that thing that you have thought or done or said. But the Spirit of God takes that thought from your mind and he puts it in your heart. You see, that's conviction. You think to yourself, it's over. I'm a goner. But for the one who is called by God, it doesn't stop there. It doesn't just stop in your head or in your heart. You do something about it. You are truly sorry for giving in to that temptation, which leads to the next thing. There's a there's a sorrow. A sorrow for your sin. There's a mourning. There's this this sorrowful mourning. You can say you weep. And it's not just because you are afraid of the consequences. It's not because you're afraid of the discipline that you will receive. You see, you see this in the Ninevites' mass repentance here in verses five through nine. They they proclaim a fast. It's an intentional thing that they did to show their true sorrow to God. 
And this kind, and this king, and his nobles, and the common people, and even the animals, did not eat anything, nor did they drink water. They put on sackcloth. You know, sackcloth is a very uncomfortable garment. It's itchy and scratchy. You see, the king led by an example. He even sat in ashes. Imagine what it would have been like. What if you were on Jonah's mission team and you're walking into that city behind Jonah? Or what if you were a, a reporter reporting the events that are taking place at this time? Well, what would you observe? What would you feel? On a smaller scale, this is what was happening in parts of Britain and also in America during those awakenings. And even in some places in the modern world, things like this really happen. Probably on a smaller scale, but they still happen nonetheless. What would go through your mind if this happened out in the park? Or in the public square? What would go through your mind? What would you do if this happened right here within the walls of Sovereign Grace? Well, we move on to the, the next part where we actually turn from sin to righteousness. You know, it's a 180-degree turn. You can't just stop being sorry, though. For you who have kids, you know what happens, and probably pretty often, right? When you need to discipline one of your children, and right away they say or they cry out, I'm sorry! A lot of times, maybe most of the time, it's because they don't want to endure the impending doom of mom or dad. They don't want to get out of their they What they want to do is get out of their consequences for disobedience and not honoring their parents and the Lord. Or what about yourself? What if you get caught doing something? that you're not supposed to do. Ah, now nah, you never do that, right? I bet you probably tell whoever caught you, I'm sorry and I won't do it again. But I imagine because I have been there, it's because you fear the consequences. You can't just be sorry. There needs to be a turning to God and renewed faith. Because really, godly repentance is a 180-degree about face. You are heading in the wrong way, your own way, obeying the world, the flesh, and the devil. And when you get stopped in your tracks by God, you cannot continue any longer. To recognize the folly of your ways, and you turn completely around to follow God's way. For Jonah, we know he was called by God and God is still working on his heart attitude even to the end of the book. But we know that something happened in his heart in the belly of the fish and God, by his grace, gave him a second chance. And he obeys this time. He hates Nineveh. Not for some 
reasons of racism or social injustice, which I believe is a flawed interpretation, but because he is, he doesn't want to see Israel's enemies saved. And behind this, he struggles to obey God and his word. But here in chapter 3, we see that he does finally obey, and he goes into the city, and he delivers the word of the Lord. Remember, he was heading as far away as he could from God in chapter 1. But now he is following God. And the Ninevites, they not only fast and put on sackcloth, they acknowledge God. Now in this passage, they don't use the word Yahweh here, meaning the covenant promise-keeping God, but rather Elohim, meaning God. It can be a more generic term, the same term used of pagan gods, but in the context, you see that Nineveh was a pagan Gentile city who had just heard the message. So I believe, along with many others, that they are speaking of the same God. God Almighty. The God that Jonah served. And then there's fruit of repentance. They believe God, verse 5. And don't we hope and pray that our children would believe God, that they would have saving faith, faith in Jesus Christ. And don't we hope and pray that the sketchy parts of Redlands or San Bernardino, etc., would believe God, and we would experience and witness revival and reformation according to God's word in our land. Now, our discussion of repentance would not be complete. Our exposition would not be complete if we didn't mention God's repentance. What do you mean, God's repentance? God repents? Well, yeah, just listen. So far, everything we have looked at had been God's grace. God shows us his grace in giving us second chances. God manifests to us his grace in our prayers. God graciously touches our lips and uses our humble words when we share Christ with others. His grace and kindness leads us and all whom he would call to repentance. Because of his grace, which he especially lavishes on his own, we are brought to our knees, and we are brought into his family. Well, some older English ver uh, versions say in verses 9 and 10 that God can repent. But what does that mean? God does not sin. So why does he repent? Well, the word here means relent from his fierce anger and wrath that the people deserve if they would not repent. This does not mean, however, that God waits for people will re to repent and then he'll decide whether or not he, uh, he, he will give them mercy or judgment. You see, the future is not 
a question mark for God. It is not dependent on what creatures do. God knows all things. He planned all things, and all things work out according to his perfect pleasure. And throughout the Bible, we see that the wages of sin is death. We see that there are curses and there are blessings and there are God-ordained consequences for one's thoughts, words, and deeds. So in verse 10, God's repenting or relenting means that they deserved death, but God gave them life. This is consistent with God's character and his will. They did not receive the impending doom that Jonah promised because they believed Jonah's message and they believed God. So God relented. This is the gospel. God turning away his wrath and anger God not giving us the just punishment our, uh, our sins deserve, that is gospel. It's because of his grace, too. It's because of Jesus Christ. God took the wrath and punishment off of us and placed them on Jesus. Jesus accepted and received our punishment. Because Jesus stands in our place. Jesus stands in the place of all, not one left out that would repent of their sins and believe on him for salvation. And so, what will it be? Will it, you continue on that wrong path that you're headed down? Or will you hear the warning and turn around and run after Jesus? And then what will you do? If you choose to follow Jesus, he asks you to share him with others. In Psalm 67, the psalmist asked God to bless his, his people so that they might be a blessing. Are you a blessing to others? Trust in Jesus. Follow Jesus and you will be a blessing to others. Who knows? He just might use you as part of his instrument to bring gospel change. Look to Jesus. Trust in him. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he saved us freely by grace. We know there are many that are still afar off, many who continue to sin against you in thought, word, and deed, and they have no regard for your word. Yet you are powerful. Your word is power, and your word can break the bonds of sin in anyone's life. Lord, give us confidence, give us courage to speak of you to others, whether it's just a little bit, whether it's a lot. May you give us that unction, that empowerment, and that courage to speak of Christ, because we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.